0: This message comes from NPR sponsor Dave's Killer Bread, and they're ready to rock the bread aisle. Dave's Killer Bread is a leading organic bread for a reason, killer taste, texture, and nutrition. This isn't bread. This is Bread Amplified. Hey, everyone. Just a quick thing before we start the show. Um, I want to let you know that we are heading to the West Coast this summer to do two live shows, which I'm super excited about. The first one is in San Francisco on August 2nd. I'll be talking with the co-founders of Reddit, Alexis Ohanian and Steve Hoffman. And if you're in Seattle on September 14th, save the date because I'll be talking with Starbucks founder Howard Schultz. If you want to find out more about how I built this live events, go to nprpresents.org. Okay, here's the show.
1: I had read a lot of literature about women entrepreneurs, and I had learned the statistic that only 2% of all women-owned businesses ever break a million dollar revenue is that true yes isn't that frightening shocking yeah but I'd set myself that goal so I just said right once I get to a million in revenue I've done something that most women entrepreneurs aren't able to do
0: from NPR it's how I built this show about innovators, entrepreneurs, idealists, and the stories behind the movements they built. I'm Guy Raz, and on today's show, how one Australian mother searched for the right blankie for her newborn, and when she couldn't find it, she built a baby blanket company now making $100 million a year. So back in 2013, you might remember the birth of a brand new royal baby, the heir to the British throne. that the Duchess of Cambridge has been delivered has been of a son. That eight um,
1: pounds six ounces to the Duke. And and we're hearing as we're looking at these pictures from Buckingham what? Palace.
0: The day after he was born, mom and dad stood outside St Mary's Hospital in Paddington and introduced Prince George to the world. Uh,
2: He's got a good pair of lungs on him, that's for sure. (laughs) He's uh, he's a big boy, he's quite heavy, but uh, we're still working on a name.
0: And as the camera zoomed in on baby George, you could just make out that he was wrapped up in a white cotton swaddle, printed with tiny cartoon birds. And after a little internet sleuthing, people tracked down the maker of that swaddle, Aiden and Anae. It's a baby product company that sells swaddle blankets for about 15 bucks a piece. And of course, the effect was instantaneous. Within four hours, the company's website crashed and then it crashed again the next day. And for Aiden and Anae's co-founder, Reagan Moya-Jones, it was a pretty big shock because the company was barely seven years old. And over that seven year period, Aiden and Anae had been through a lot of ups and downs starting with the recession in 2008, and then eventually a traumatic breakup between Reagan and her business partner that threatened to dissolve the entire company. A company, by the way, with yearly revenue now of over $100 million. So how did she create this company, Aiden and Anae? Well, the story begins when Reagan and her husband Marcos moved from Sydney, Australia to New York in 1997 after he got a job. And Regan, at the time, she didn't really have any plans.
1: I came here without a job, without a working visa, and I thought, you know what, I'll do some volunteer stuff, I'll learn to speak Spanish because my husband's Chilean, and I'll fill my time that way for two years and sort of treat it as just a you know a, a new and different journey rather than being you know one hundred miles an hour with my work and my studies. And uh, that didn't kind of work out for me because about four months in, my husband initially was working from home because, you know, they were really setting things up from the ground here in New York. And uh, he walked into the living room and I was laying on the couch at 11 o'clock in my pyjamas, you know, and he just said to me, what the hell are you doing? Come on, you gotta you got to get up and shake this off and... Find something to do. Were
0: you were you you getting depressed because you were bored?
1: I, I don't know that I was depressed. I just I didn't know anybody in New York, and I just sort of fell into a rut. I think, and I underestimated how much I needed to be the person that you know had a very full schedule. So rather than using the downtime productively, I just used the downtime to lay on the couch and watch morning talk shows.
0: Yeah, that does sound depressing.
1: It was. It was horrible. Eventually,
0: Reagan's visa did come through so she could start working. And within about a year, she landed
1: a job as a sales rep for The Economist magazine. And this sounds obnoxious, but I was really good at it. Mm -hmm. You know, the wonderful thing with sales is you live and die by the number that you're told to hit. And I was very fortunate that I never didn't hit the numbers.
0: Did you like it? Did you have fun?
1: I did have fun. I did I love it? Was it was was it my passion? Absolutely not. And I was very frustrated that I wasn't really taken seriously in terms of being able to be promoted and everything. I was very much sort of kept in my box of what I had always done, albeit in different areas of the business over ten years. Uh, but that was that was a huge frustration to me that. It was obvious I was never really going to go anywhere within the Economist.
0: Did you like? Were you dreaming of leaving and, and starting your own thing?
1: I wasn't going to leave it for another job. I think I have always been an entrepreneur. I never defined myself as that, but there was always a desire for me to do something on my own. I just never had had an idea. I'd had lots of ideas, but none that I felt were worth sort of, you know, diving in the deep end for. But
0: I mean, at some point, I mean, you got an idea, the, the idea that would become Aiden and, and Anae. So what happened?
1: Well, I had my first of my four daughters. That's ah. what happened. I was pregnant with Anae and I was you know, getting ready as we all do when we're having our first baby with all the paraphernalia that you think you need. And I went out looking for these muslin blankets that were extremely common back home in Australia, so common that you could buy them in, you know, supermarkets. It was mind-blowing to me when I went looking for them in the U.S. that they didn't actually exist. You
0: couldn't find them. And I guess just to explain to to, to somebody who doesn't know what a muslin blanket is, it's, it's sort of like a really soft cheesecloth kind of, yes,
1: right? Yes, it's, it's like a gauze. And um, not only was it, in my opinion, and still in my opinion, the only thing you should wrap your baby in because it's lightweight and breathable and big enough to be able to securely swaddle the babies – it was the fact that this one blanket did multiple things. So Mm. you could use it as a burp cloth. You could use it as a portable crib sheet. You could use it as a nursing cover. You could use it as a stroller cover. You could, you know, you just use it to mop up the messes that, are you know inevitable when you have newborn babies that sort of thing. So, and the the thing with muslin is the more you wash it, the softer it gets.
0: So in Australia, this is just normal. Like all babies were wrapped in these all babies these cotton muslin wraps.
1: Yes. So that was you know, and and I just thought every every Australian can't have this wrong. And if I introduce this product to American parents, I was just absolutely 100% certain that they would respond huh. to it the same way as us Aussies had.
0: So you um, presumably took leave after uh, Anae was born and mm-hmm. uh, and then went back to The
1: Economist? Yes, I had three months off. And and did you go back to The
0: Economist with this idea churning in your head yet? Yes. And how do you then start to make this a reality What what's the first thing you do
1: well i had no supply chain or operational you know experience or knowledge you know i'm a salesperson you yeah. know so i had to find out how i would even go about making this stuff and that took a long time so you had the idea in 2003 when Anae was born, and it took it took till 2006 to actually work out how to make it and and get it to market. So did you start this process all by yourself? No, I had a I had a partner, the one person that my husband knew from Australia, his best friend's ex girlfriend Claudia who ended up marrying an American guy. And that was the first person I met here. And Claudia is Aiden's mum. She was the other co-founder of Aiden and Danae. (laughs) Wow.
0: So you guys got together and she agreed. She said, this is crazy that you can't get these in America.
1: Well, she had Aiden about seven or eight months after I had Anae. So I had been in Australia and I was coming back from Australia and I would stop and hang out with Claudia and Mark, her husband, in L.A. to break up the trip. And I distinctly remember sitting on Aidan's nursery floor and... Um, I just said to her, we need to, we need to do this, Claudia, like, you know, we need to find a way to make this happen, and she actually said, well, why don't we just try and become a distributor for the company that already makes it Uh, out of Australia? Yeah,
0: which which seems like a reasonable suggestion.
1: And I said, well, why would you do that? I said, and I want it to be better than what is already available in Australia. And I, I remember saying, and we can call the company Aiden and Danae after the babies. And that was sort of how it all got started.
0: All right. Just like a logistical question, because you kind of had a, a a growing sense of how to maybe start a business. But what about the design side of it? I mean, did you have, were you going to design the blankets? Were you going to design the patterns and the, and the shapes on them?
1: That's a great question because I am not the most artistic person. Mm. Actually, I, you know, my artistic skills don't go beyond stick people. Yeah. You know, I really can't draw to save my life. But I am very opinionated and I have a very <laughs> clear vision of what I like aesthetically from a design perspective and I am so type A, you know, that I was very much... I want these colors, I want these images, I want it to look like, you know, and we Claudia and I hired a, you know, outside freelance design people to come up with our initial designs that launched the first products.
0: So where did you find the manufacturing facility? How did you find somebody who 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 could make these muslin cotton blankets?
1: This is actually an interesting story, guy, because I was standing at the reception desk at The Economist and the mail arrived and on the top of the mail was a Women's Wear Daily magazine. So I'm flipping through this and then there's a full-page advertisement for an Asian textile sourcing trade show that was happening in New York City Hmm. three days later. So obviously I went to that trade show and... I walked the entire trade show of probably 40 vendors and then I got to literally the last vendor before I was about to walk out the door. And I walked over and I said, I'm trying to find someone that can make this fabric for me. It's called muslin. He said, I have no idea what this is, but I work for a major manufacturing company in China. Let me take this back and see what they say and 2 weeks later I got a, a an email saying we can make this for you and that was it
0: so it was literally the last booth you went to
1: absolutely true story I was out the door bar 1 booth and they ended up becoming my manufacturer for 10 years
0: unbelievable so so when they they sent you the first sample did they did they get it right right away
1: no Okay. There was a myriad of back and forth in terms of getting the quality to where I wanted it and I am not a textiles technical person. I have no idea. I understand the basics now having been in it for so many years but I couldn't tell them the grade of cotton. I couldn't tell them the warp and weft counts. I couldn't tell them anything. I just basically said make it like this but I need it to be softer and then I worked with the factories over the years on the way to wash it and what to put in the wash to make it soft and obviously as a mum I wouldn't let them use anything that was in any way you know they used to use formaldehyde in dyes on Mm. baby but that that stuff just blew my mind so obviously that was very important to me, that there was none of that in any Aden and A products. And it was a long and laborious process with a a hell of a lot of uh, failures along the way where we had full containers of product that when they arrived in the US, like the fabric had turned yellow. So, you know, there's so many stories about the trials and tribulations of actually perfecting the fabrication.
0: Were you still working at The Economist at this point?
1: Yes, I stayed working at The Economist until May of 2009. So
0: Did you tell your colleagues about it? Did
1: they find out? No, nobody knew. Were you keeping it secret because you just didn't I want- I didn't want anybody looking or questioning me. Yeah. And again, I, I go back to, I was a salesperson. I never, ever didn't make my budget. I, I didn't want to walk out that door And then have people say, well, it's all good and well that she's created this business, but it was at the expense of Mm. The Economist.
0: Yeah, right. At this point, I guess, 2006, NA NA is... Uh, three. Mm -hmm. And then did you have another child by that point?
1: I actually had three of my four daughters by that point.
0: Okay, so you were still working full time at The Economist and presumably flying back and forth to L.A. to to work with Claudia on on the side business. And you were also raising three
1: kids. I mean, how did you make all of this work? It was really, really hard. But... It was a conscious decision that I made. So when I got home from, I used to call The Economist my real job.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: When I got home from the real job, I was well in mummy mode and I focused on my girls. Mm. And then when the girls went to bed at 8.30, that's when I would start my day of working on Aiden and Anae and I would do that until, you know, 3.30 every morning. Wow. And, uh Because it was a conscious decision on my part, I sort of never, I just never really complained about it. Mm. It was what it was.
0: So it's 2006. You have uh, your you make your first big order. Um, How many? What what was that order like? What do you remember?
1: Well, we started. We both started just putting fifteen thousand dollars in for our first inventory and that we we did the minimum. We had a boy pack, a girl pack, a white pack, and a towel and washcloth. And I just went door to door in LA and New York to every baby store, to every, you know, I, I picked up the phone, I called bye bye baby. I, you know, that, that was the sales girl coming out in me and actually jumping ahead a bit. A year later, the target buyer called me Called me and said, "Can you come in?" I took in, you know, six skews, thinking they might take one or two. And
0: what's how much is a skew?
1: A skew is like one four pack. So I presented six four packs, thinking they might take one boy and one girl. Yeah. And Target took all six. Wow. And rolled it out into all Target stores from day one.
0: Once you got orders from from these big companies. Um, I mean, you had to then make the order with a factory in China and, I guess, pay them money. How did you fund that?
1: We Initially, it was, um, you know, all our savings. And and the money part of it was actually what brought about the demise of Claudia and my partnership. Hmm. I don't know if you want me to talk about that, but I can because, you know, the partner thing is always... Well, often a story with entrepreneurs, right? Yeah. So, Claudia and Mark were very wealthy. Marcos and I not so much. You know, we we were doing fine, but we didn't have you know millions of dollars. Yeah. So, Marcos and I kept up for as long as we could. Matt, you know, we'd put in fifteen thousand, then we put in another thirty, then we put in another forty. You know that, and we kept Hmm. up as long as we could until we got to a point where we couldn't keep up anymore there was no access to capital you know we started the business at the beginning of the worst recession since the great depression yeah. so claudia said we just need to borrow money off you know mark and and his family which i absolutely did not want to do it was the mm. last resort but it had got to the point i think we'd borrowed 100,000 off claudia and mark and then we borrowed another 250,000 off mark's dad and very long story short, it was more Mark, I think, that was just not comfortable with the fact that in his mind they were funding the business. Yeah. And it just, got, it just got to the point where, you know, I got a demand of you've got 30 days to come up with this to buy us out. If you can't do that, we have the right to pay you the same and if we can't come to an agreement, we're going to dissolve it.
0: When we come back in a moment, how Reagan's company and friendship with Claudia changed forever. I'm Guy Raz, and you're listening to How I Built This from NPR. Support for How I Built This comes from 3M. From helping drive vaccine and therapy development with advanced purification technologies to developing an adjuvant that helps boost vaccine effectiveness, the research scientists at 3M are delivering innovative healthcare solutions to help us today and prepare us to better tackle what's next. Learn more at 3M.com slash improving lives. 3M science applied to life. Support for this podcast and the following message come from McDonald's, proudly serving communities since 1965. From birthday parties to little league after game hangouts, everyone's been to McDonald's. It's more than just a place to get tasty, affordable food. It's a place where friends and families from the community come together. And because the majority of restaurants are run by independent franchisees, McDonald's has deep roots in communities. Show support for your community the next time you walk into a local McDonald's. I'm loving it. Hey, welcome back to How I Built This from NPR. I'm Guy Raz. So when Reagan's friend and business partner, Claudia, told her she wanted out of Aiden and Anae, Reagan had to figure out how to hold on to the company.
1: When Claudia exited the business in 2000, uh, very early 2008, it was, it was me. It was just me alone doing all the work. I was sales, customer service, manufacturing, you know, marketing, finance. My husband was helping with the finance side of things. So I hired one person to at least alleviate some of the work that I was having to start doing at 8.30, 9 o'clock at night once my girls went to bed because that was also a line I have drew very deeply in the sand for myself that these little girls did not sign on from an for an entrepreneurial mother, but I did believe in the business. And I went out to a few of my other friends who were watching what I was doing to raise the few hundred thousand dollars that Claudia, you know, wanted for you know the work that she'd put into the business so far
0: to buy her out
1: to buy her out so three other people came into the business and bought 49% of the business for like $500,000 wow
0: this is a really important story because we don't get to hear these stories too often about the the reality of of starting a business with a partner where at the beginning it's there's this vision of, of, of a kind of a utopian business, and there are partnerships that, that really work, but but often, oftentimes the case is, is, is more like this, where money gets involved and tension builds, and people get nervous about the investment. And you can kind of understand where Claudia and Mark were coming That's from. Close. I mean you could, I mean, I mean, they were getting nervous. They were they had a lot of money on the line. Mm-hmm. But I mean, I, I have to imagine that it, ha- it took a toll on your friendship.
1: Oh, well, we've. she never spoke to me again because I just responded and said, Claude, what are you doing? Breaking my heart here. We can talk through this. You know, I was the legal guardian of their children. That's how oh. close we were. And um, it was horrible. It is horrible. But, you know, it was I, I wanted to talk to her. She just, in her mind, it was over. And look, and I... I get it. She was under the pressure of her family, and it was mm. her marriage, and all of those things. So I don't, I don't not understand why it happened. Yeah, it was just, um, it was just heartbreaking that it did.
0: Did you, did you think that the business was going to collapse?
1: No, I never thought that. I, I thought I might collapse. Yeah, um, I, and I questioned whether or not I could keep going because obviously it was an extremely emotional time and. Um, but no, I've, I've never ever doubted Aiden and Danae.
0: Was there any tension in, in your marriage? I mean, None. was Marcos fully supportive?
1: Fully, su- he was the one who actually, when I started to to get a bit shaky, uh, through the whole, you know, drama with Claudia, and I said to him, look, I, I don't know if I can do this, huh. you know, I, and he said to me do you believe in the business and i said i absolutely believe in the business he said well then fight for it yeah you know don't give up fight for it H- have you
0: have you ever had any contact with claudia since since the breakup
1: absolutely none hmm. unfortunately the friendship was very much a casualty of yeah. of the business but she must know where the company has has her, gone. her child's name is on I know. People ask me why I didn't change the name, and I, it's why I still refer to myself as the co-founder, even mm. though Claudia's been gone for forever. Um, I co-founded this business mm. with her, so I, it didn't feel right to me to just sort of cut her out of the story.
0: Hmm. So so you buy out Claudia's share?
1: Well, I don't.
0: You, your partners, partners do, and you... And you move on. You you continue to grow this business, believing that this is going to work. And at what point were you finally able to leave The Economist? What was the the milestone you hit in the company that made you comfortable that you could focus full time on this thing?
1: Well, I had read a lot of literature about women entrepreneurs. And I had learned the statistic that only 2% of all women-owned businesses ever Break a million dollar revenue. Is that true? Yes. Isn't that frightening? That's shocking. Yeah. So that I set myself that goal. So I just said, right, once I get to a million in revenue, I've done something that most women entrepreneurs aren't able to do. So at that point, I allowed myself to quit and focus on Aiden and A full time.
0: All right. So you, when you finally, when you leave the Economist, I'm assuming you told them why.
1: No, you didn't. no, I didn't. I just <laughs> said i've I've got another opportunity, and here's my two weeks notice." And uh, my then boss, who I wasn't a huge fan of, I was having a discussion, and I distinctly remember it was about a week before i was I handed in my resignation, so I knew it was coming. and I sat in his office and he said to me, "Oh, what would you know? You do not have an entrepreneurial bone in your body?" <laughs> <laughs> and then here's here's even, this story gets even better. That boss ended up working at Cranes. yeah. And we have won multiple awards with Cranes as the fastest, one of the fastest 50 growing entrepreneurial businesses in New York.
0: I mean, do experiences like that with your boss, do they like add fuel to your fire? Are, are they powerful motivators for
1: you? You know what my biggest motivation always was with this guy? And it was never about making a lot of money. Mine was very much proving to myself I could do it because I had been told by many people over the years that I was only capable of X. When in my heart of hearts, I always thought I was capable of Y, but I was just never afforded the opportunity to prove it.
0: Hmm. Okay, so so by two thousand nine, you you leave the Economist, and then I guess you're, you're profitable. But by the way, what what is your revenue that year?
1: We closed two thousand and nine at just over four million. So as soon as I focused on it, you know, a hundred percent, it changed the game. And then we we more than doubled every year for wow. the five years after that.
0: I guess I I, I guess it was around two thousand and ten where you took on some outside investment?
1: That's correct. I took on my first private equity firm in 2010.
0: Why did you do that? I mean, up until this point, you are the majority owner, you know, you're doing well, 4 million revenue. What did that enable you guys to do?
1: Well, it enabled me to scale. So it gave me some money to be able to hire some more people, buy more inventory, because we would literally be, you know, the core team. There was about eight of us, nine of us. And we would be sitting there late at night going, okay, well, we'd need we do our inventory planning. We'd say, okay, well, we need this. And then we'd look at it and go, well, we can only afford half of it and we'd just have to cut half of what we really needed. We could never keep up with the demand. So when the private equity firm came in, it just allowed us to be able to get... Look, even today I can't keep up with the demand, but it's... um, It enabled us to get closer to it at least back then yeah
0: i i know that um like at a certain point celebrities started to be like you know us weekly like that they're just like us they swaddle their babies except the swaddle was like your swaddle blankets when did you start to see celebrities using the blankets
1: one week after we went on the market and when i say went on the market me walking the product to the stores and handing it to the store owners in la Adam Sandler and his wife, who just had their baby, were photographed on Malibu Beach with their baby in a carrier with an Aiden and A blanket draped over the front of the baby and it was a full-page picture in Us Weekly. So we had celebrity press from a week after we went on the market. Did
0: anybody know what the blanket was, though?
1: No, not back then, but we actually named a pack paparazzi once sort of as a nod to... How many photographers photograph our blankets with the celebrities trying to hide their babies away? Um, back in, in two
0: thousand thirteen, uh, Prince William and Kate Middleton—I uh, guess we should call them the, the Duke and Duchess of Cambridge—they uh, had a baby, Prince George. Uh, so they leave the hospital, and, uh, and, and what did you what did you see?
1: They left the hospital in an Aiden and A blanket, which blew my mind having been raised in Australia because that I would have bet every penny I had on the fact that was never going to happen because there's royal protocol and no royal baby has ever come out in anything other than a white wool blanket that has been royally appointed to the f- family, you know. And lo and behold, they walk out in... Aiden and an A, and the world goes wild.
0: And 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 so, did sales just go crazy?
1: Yes, you know the typical reaction, the royal effect. Our website crashed twice. We sold out of that around the world. People were coveting it to the point where they were paying three times the value of it. Wow. It was insane. I was like, guys, we've got other patterns over here of the same, but they all just wanted. What, the royal baby had. what was the pattern that he had, by the way? It was, uh, interestingly, it was uh, from a pack called Jungle Jam, which th- was the third pack that I ever released. So that particular design had been on the market for eight years when the Royal Baby came mm. out in it.
0: I mean, just to be clear, these are not like super crazy expensive, right? I mean, how much is a four-pack?
1: Uh, well, now it's forty nine ninety five. When I started, it was $44. And that was always... I never set out to build a, a luxurious celebrity, you know, endorsed brand. I wanted to create and make other mothers aware of this amazing product that as a mother, I just didn't understand how they could have babies without it.
0: When you um around I guess around two thousand thirteen you guys you guys got a big investment, right?
1: That's correct. Swander Pace Capital entered in and they became the majority shareholders now in Aiden A. However, I still remain the single largest individual shareholder in the company.
0: So explain how this works. They they bought a big share of the company, but that allowed you to cash out some of some of the value of the company?
1: That's correct. They bought they bought the whole company. What I did was bought back in as a major shareholder in the company.
0: I mean so in a sense that I guess that made you sat financially for the rest of your life.
1: Yes. Baby blankets have afforded my family an incredibly wonderful life.
0: And you're still the CEO. I am. So a pretty incredible result.
1: Yes, it is. Although what I will tell you, Guy, is I much prefer and I believe I'm much better at the entrepreneurial building of a company. Now that we're over $100 million, Mm -hmm. it's just very different. You know, obviously, the way you run a $100 million company to the way you run a you know, a 20 or even a 30, $40 million company, you know, you can get by with running your business on Excel spreadsheets at 30 million. It doesn't cut it at 100. Like at 30 million, I was still very much involved, you know, in a lot of the day-to-day. Whereas now at this size, oh my gosh, there is so much that, you know, I'm only getting updates once a week. I'm just not involved in that kind of, way anymore. So I definitely do not enjoy this as much as I did when I was much more in the weeds huh. of the, the business. That's interesting. And, and I um, you know, I, I miss that.
0: Given that you got this big payout, do you ever think, I don't know, maybe I'll just like stop working and just take up a, a hobby or do something completely different for a while?
1: Well, it's I could never be the lady that lunches. Hmm. It's just not... You remember back to the story of me on the couch in my mm-hmm. pajamas. You yeah. know, so too much time is not a good thing for me. Interestingly, I was talking to my eldest daughter, Renee, the other night, and I said, to her, what do you think, baby, if, you know... Mum, stop being the CEO of Aiden and A and, you know, I could spend more time and yeah. do more. And she's like, please don't, Mum. Like, <laughs> I'm, I'm good. We're good with the amount of time that we have you around. <laughs> so I laughed hard at that. But um, not only do I think that it would be good for me that if I maybe wasn't the CEO of this business, it might be good for the business to bring in somebody who has run a business of this size and has scaled from 100 to... Three hundred, because I I really believe that that's where this brand is going. And do I think I could do it? I know I could do it, but I would do it making a hell of a lot more mistakes than somebody who is seasoned who had done it before. I'm a I'm a self taught CEO. I'm yeah. I've never run a hundred million dollar business before till this year when we're a hundred million dollars. You mm. know, so there are people out there though who have done that. For many, many years, and have a proven track record that you know that would probably do a much better job of it than than I do. and And selfishly being the mum of four little girls, my worst nightmare would be in fifteen years' time when I am sitting at a bar with my four girls, as as adult women. Not being able to turn to Aiden and Anae as a company and a brand and say, "Hey, your mum did that when you were tiny babies at our kitchen table, and now look at it—it's a, you know, a half a billion-dollar global brand." So that's my—that's my ultimate goal for for how this this story is going to play out.
0: Reagan Moya Jones, she's the CEO and co-founder of Aiden and an A. By the way, a few months ago, the Huffington Post ran a story called 52 Things I Learned in 52 Weeks of Parenting.
1: And number one on the list was that nobody can pronounce Aiden and an A. <laughs> <laughs> so you kinda know you've made it a brand when you're number one on a list in a Huffington Post, you know, article on motherhood.
0: And stick around, because in just a moment, we're going to hear from you about the things you're building. But first, a quick thanks to one of our sponsors, TD Ameritrade. TD Ameritrade is always ready to listen and have a conversation about your goals. For a complimentary goal planning session to discuss your financial future, visit tdameritrade.com slash podcast. Hey, thanks for sticking around because it's time now for How You Built That. And this next story comes to us from Shenzhen, China.
2: My name is Sam Boyd, and I'm the founder of Guided Imports.
0: And Sam's story jumped out at us because, you know, a lot of times we do interviews with people on the show who invent something and then build a prototype and then they, they find a factory in China to make it. And Sam, he is the guy in China who finds the factory. And all this started about five years ago when he was in college and studying Chinese in China. And one day at a restaurant, two locals walked up to him.
2: We started talking. You know, they, they see a foreigner in this small city and they want to they wanna know what's, what's going on. What is he doing here? And I asked what they do. And, you know, it sort of led to them talking about their factory and them asking me, do you know anyone who's interested in purchasing our products? And I said, yeah, sure. I don't really know anyone, but I'm going to find someone for you.
0: Okay, but the product these two guys were talking about? Pretty specific. They were talking about sterilized packaging, like the kind of thing you might use for medical equipment. And Sam didn't have a clue how to find buyers for something like that. But it didn't really matter because after that conversation in the restaurant, he saw an opportunity.
2: China is incredible in terms of it being such an entrepreneurial location and being fortunate enough to have a Western education, having grown up in America, I said, I can be doing this.
0: And by this, he was thinking, I could be the middleman. I could be the person between people in the West who want to sell consumer goods and Chinese factories that want to make them. So to learn more about how all of this worked, Sam got a job at a company in Shenzhen that makes electronic gadgets.
2: And when I saw how things work, and I really just explain it as my, I opened my eyes and saw You know, this is how business is done. So that was the experience that I had where I said, why do I have a boss right now? I don't want a boss. I want to be the boss because I can make something big.
0: At the time, Sam was 22 years old. And that day, he quit his job at the gadget company and set out to become an American middleman in China.
2: I was on the other side of the world from friends, from family, from every type of safety net that I've ever had in my life. And the, the Monday of me going to work and going to work was leaving my bedroom and going to my kitchen table in my shared apartment in Shenzhen. It was just, oh my goodness, what do I do?
0: So Sam started scrolling through Reddit pages and blogs, looking for English-speaking entrepreneurs who wanted their products made in China.
2: And I started just saying, hey, I'm an American. If you're looking for products, let me know, and I can try to help you find them.
0: And in his first year, Sam signed up about 15 clients who wanted to make stuff in
2: China. Like watch boxes and jewelry boxes, wallets, toothbrush replacement heads.
0: Now, at the time, it was just Sam and his assistant, and the two of them would call places all over China to find factories to make the products.
2: And uh, it's funny, because I remember my roommate, he wasn't too happy with all of the boxes that were just coming in and filling up the apartment. And, you know, we're stacking boxes of just products that we were getting ready to ship out of product. That
0: was during the first few months. Now, Sam's been in business for three years. He has an office with 15 employees in Shenzhen. And the company helps clients find a factory. They do quality control, they handle all the shipping, and they do all this for a flat fee, about a thousand bucks. And last year, Sam says guided imports made almost half a million dollars.
2: Once I started building this this company, I said, I'm going to stay here for five years. Well, now I look at it and I already said I'm going to stay here five years. I'm overstaying that. So I don't necessarily know what the future is. It could be another five years. It could be, you know, 50 more years.
0: That's Sam Boyd. He lives in Shenzhen, China. You can read more about his company Guided Imports on our Facebook page. Just search How I Built This on Facebook. And of course, if you want to tell us your story, please go to Build. Npr.org we love 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 hearing your stories and thanks for listening to the show this week. If you want to find out more or if you want to hear previous episodes you can go to how you can write us hibt at npr.org and if you want to send us a tweet it's at how I built this. Our show is produced this week by Rachel Faulkner with original music composed by Ramteen Arablouei. Thanks also to Neva Grant, Sanaz Meshkanpour, Claire Breen, and Jeff Rogers. Our intern is Lawrence Wu. I'm Guy Raz, and you've been listening to How I Built This from NPR. If you're looking for a new podcast to try, how about Planet Money? Give it a fresh listen. One thing people say about Planet Money is how much they love listening to it, even though they don't care about business or economics. It's just a smart show with great stories that help explain our world. It's explanatory journalism at its best for a time that really needs some sane reporting about the big questions. Find Planet Money on NPR One or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Guy Raz, host of How I Built This, here to tell you about another podcast I host. On this one, I talk to some of the world's top leaders about what it took to get where they are. Triumphs, failures, and all. It's called Wisdom from the Top from NPR and Luminary.